0: This presentation of In Their Own Words is brought to you by The Honor Project and is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. The Wild Weasels were the Air Force's wildest pilots in Vietnam. They flew fighter jets like the F-100, F-105 and F-4 deep into hostile airspace to coax the enemy into opening fire with their surface-to-air missiles. Once the Weasels located the radar site, other fighter bombers were called in to kill it. Paired with an Electronic Warfare Officer, or EWO, the Weasels constantly engaged in a deadly game of cat and mouse. In 1966, Jerry Hoblett, a 32-year-old Air Force pilot, was one of the first men trained in the ways of the Wild Weasel.
1: Well, the aircraft versus the surface-to-air missile was a duel. It was Dodge City at high noon. It was similar to other military duels, tank versus tank, fighter aircraft versus fighter aircraft, or even submarine versus submarine in some respects, but in one uh, very important respect, it was different. That is, the adversarial systems were operated in very different environments and used very different technologies and weapons to deal with one another. Therefore, when you're a fighter pilot engaging in another fighter pilot, as a for instance, you can project from your system to his system, and the differences, usually small, will dictate and control your tactics. In the case of the surface-to-air missile versus the aircraft, they were very different. So we had a very complex set of, of technologies interfacing with, with tactics that we had to deal with. What was similar to the other duels, however, is that the final result was almost always fatal to one of the two adversaries.
0: But Hoblet's entree into the wild weasel program was not of his
1: choice. The story of how I got to be a weasel was uh, I had been in Southeast Asia on two different occasions and had, got, had been sent back to the United States and was an instructor at Nellis knew that the war was still going on and knew that my time would soon come to go back to it. My wife had a baby and I wanted to get get the baby born. So as soon as the baby was born, I volunteered to go back to Southeast Asia. And uh, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who was in charge of making assignments. And he says, oh, we have this new program, it's Wild Weasels, I'll give you a job there. I told him, no, I'm not interested in that, I just want to go back and and, and be a fighter pilot as I've been before because I knew as a military history that you don't wanna try something brand new in war because that's always dangerous, abnormally dangerous for the simple reason people don't, there's no experience to base, or, to base, base on. So uh, he said, okay, I thought he understood me. Uh, that was on Friday, went up deer hunting Came back on Monday and I walked in the squadron and I was gre- greeted with a lot of hoo-hoes and hollers about, uh, well, here's our new weasel. I said, well, thanks, friend, at the uh, personnel center.
0: But with experience, Hoblet soon gained confidence in his skills as a weasel.
1: Our early missions, of course, were were very uncomfortable, but uh, one that, uh, that sticks in my mind is that there was a a, uh, miss- we dodged many, many missiles. That was part of the business, uh, but one, on one occasion, one missile didn't seem to want to be dodged. And no matter what I did, it just seemed like he was coming right at me and didn't seem, and seemed to, to be real determined about it, although uh, as though he was alive. Uh, the last thing that I did is when he was close enough in that I could see his canards move, that's the control surfaces on the forward part of the missile, I just yanked for all I, I had, and uh, he went off under me and turned me over, and, uh, and uh, didn't— well, he put a few dents in the bottom of me, but that's about it. Uh, and I, I, that, that made me kind of nervous, because I was wondering how come, after, how come all at once this one missile seemed to be so much better than the others. The first SAM site that we killed really increased my confidence. Up until that time, I was daily more and more frustrated. But I never got to that moment that I've got it under control and for the simple reason that I knew that there was a very smart enemy on the other side of the fence who was looking for control and I knew that it's, it's like a sports game like a football game the minute that that you think you know you know how to how to trap block the guy next to you he's gonna pull and and you're gonna you're gonna get trap blocked yourself so. Yes, it was. Uh, there was a lot of confidence, and I felt, felt a lot better about it after we made our first SAM site kill, but I never got to the point where I thought I had all the answers.
0: Like most other fighter pilots who wanted to work alone, Hoblet was reluctant to share his plane with his electronic warfare officer, Tom Bear Wilson. But their bond proved invaluable to the success of the program.
1: Well, the air battle, always has been very intense, very complex, and very difficult to sort out. This didn't change particularly in the evil, in the uh, Wild Weasel business, but it was amplified quite a bit. The fighter pilot's basic problem is that he has too much coming at him. Too much information is coming into his cockpit. What he needs, what his lifeblood is, is processed information. He has to have the wheat separated from the chaff, and he has to have it done real time, split-second time. That's what uh, Bear Wilson did for me. He kept track of what the enemy was doing from uh, electronic standpoint from the missile stand from the surface to air missile standpoint i was keeping track of what the other things were doing the migs the strike force behind me and the management of my flight but he kept me advised of the primary threat the threat that not only was a threat to us but the threat that we intended to deal with and make them less of it make them a negative threat a ness- less of a threat it uh It took a very special person to be able to look at all the things that that he looked at and communicate that to the guy in the front without further loading the guy in the front with information. He had to sort it out, understand what the enemy was doing, anticipate what the enemy was going to do, and communicate that to me in a very minimal fashion. Sometimes he would do that with only inflection of of a voice. Even a grunt while we were pulling G's could tell me lots of things. Very few people could do what what, uh, Bear Wilson did. Only two or three did it well. And Bear Wilson was unquestionably the best of any of them. Well, on our first combat mission together, at that period of time, I had already had 25 combat missions as a strike pilot on my own. And I thought I kind of knew what was going on. However, I made a couple of poor tactical decisions and got us in a lot of trouble. Got us to where we not only nearly lost our own lives, but lost the lives of other people. This caused us to go back. And we had already studied a lot. We had trained as much as we had time to. But it was obvious that we hadn't done anywhere near enough work, either together. What, or individually, it was also obvious that at this point our tactics that we were told by the people that preceded us were so undeveloped as, as to leave, a, leave us in a lot of trouble. So our, Tom and I recognized that what we needed to do is to really approach this very carefully, and you didn't have much time to be careful. You're going to fly the next day. We had to really get, get, into, get into the study mode and really figure out what, what was going to do, and we had to, to, to come up with new ideas and do it quickly, and do it very efficiently, because not only was our own lives at risk, but more importantly, we had the very high risk of failing, which is worse to a professional than dying. Bearing in mind that single-engine, single-seat fighter pilots don't care at all about having somebody else in their airplane, and uh, I was not not at all sure about that act that, that how I was going to go go with that so pretty well, I looked around and said that man looks like he might be acceptable and uh, so it was kind of a winnowing out of uh, uh, one, and I guess Tom was doing about the same thing he had heard he had heard uncomplimentary but inaccurate things about our arrogance and uh, things like this and uh, and thought that I was probably uh, the most modest of the group, I suppose.
0: The Wild Weasels used tactics specifically developed for their unique brand of flying.
1: Well, the tactics when we arrived were either to get way out ahead of the strike force or to actually accompany and be embedded in the strike force. Uh, Neither one of those worked very well. We found that what we needed to be... If you were right embedded in the strike force, you were too late to deal with the SAMs. If you were too far out ahead. They dealt with you, then they dealt with the strike force. So what we found, it was an optimum place of about a minute out ahead. That puts you uh, somewhere between five and nine miles out ahead of the, of the strike force. The most effective thing that we came up with was to uh, divide the elements. Uh, we do this in air-to-air fighting. Called Fluid Four Formation, but in the weasel business is quite a bit different. We were close to the ground, and we were uh, we were separated by many miles, way outside visual range, and we couldn't maintain very good uh, radio contact because of so much radio chatter. So we were in a f- we were a f- we were effectively coordinated by virtue of our pre briefings. And by virtue of what of, of our knowledge is, but we couldn't do any real-time coordination to speak of. But this put us with the strike force at the target, and us ahead of the strike force a little bit, and bracketing the target. This really gave the SAMs uh, a tough time. If they engaged one of us, the other guy would get them, uh, or could possibly probably get them. It was a tremendous force multiplier. The uh, uh, a couple of our early SAM site kills were dre- directly attributed to this tactic. In one case, uh, the SAM engaged the other element, my other element, when I was the, when I was the lead, and uh, fired at him. And he fired, and I happened to be on what we call a base leg. That's right where you roll in from altitude at your at your target. When he fired, I just looked over the side of my co- of my cockpit, and there, hidden in the jungle, was all the the uh, smoke and corruption that, that occurs after a missile launch, and I had not to do but just to roll in and kill him. And this happened on something nearly like that, happened on, an, on yet another occasion. Our equipment gave us a lot of information about the enemy radar. Prime, one of the best things it gave us, it gave us the direction. We knew exactly which direction he was from us. But what it did not give us in anywhere near refined enough form was how far away from us he was. So, therefore, we couldn't tell exactly where he was. And he was very, very good at camouflage, and he moved frequently, almost every day. So we couldn't pre-plan a mission after him. But by getting him to launch a missile, now there's a lot of stuff that happens when a missile launches. there's a lot of commotion and smoke and dust on the ground now he's exposed his position so we were had to get him to shoot at somebody and we were the guys that chosen to be shot at obviously it would be it would be preferred not to draw enemy fire before you attack him but that's we were we were pretty well constrained to that in order to attack him we had to draw his fire first and then the tactic was 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 dictated by that set of circumstances. Was put him at uh, ten or two o'clock, where you can best watch him out the front of your airplane, and watch the missile. Don't do much until the missile is close on board. And when the close on board, we ne- made a in-game maneuver to cause the missile to miss. And now we're controlling the situation. We know where he is. He has to reload. We have lethal ordnance. we have a wingman with even more lethal ordnance, and we're going to deal with him that's the only way it could be done with the technology later technologies give you distance distance but you still uh, are going to have to you still are going to have to make that final pinpoint location uh, of him so maybe maybe that we're, we're going to be stuck with that for a while i'm not sure i'm we'll, how, how the how the guys that are practitioners of the weasel business now are doing it. but that was the only way we could do it. Uh, certainly not, not not the way of choice but it was a way that worked and uh, and that's what we did
0: 29 year old Tom Bear Wilson was Jerry Hoblet's electronic warfare officer or Ewo. Wilson explains the evolution of the tactic of attacking a surface-to-air missile site.
2: I believe it's because of our client, and our client was the fighter pilot uh, dropping bombs. And in every war since World War I, the, the primary losses have been on the head of the uh, dive-bombing fighter pilot. Our job was to protect him. Uh, when Jerry and I got to Takli, Thailand, their loss rate was 63% that they would not complete their 100 missions. And uh, it's a pretty spectacular and good mission to try to stop that. And we did that two different ways. Uh, the first was on a temporary basis, an immediate basis for that mission. In other words, we would fire our Shrike anti-radiation missiles, try to keep them off the gr- uh, air, and uh, have immediate results. The Second and more lasting mission was for tomorrow's air crews and for that one you actually had to dive bomb and destroy the service to air missile site. Uh, in doing that we shared the same probable losses that the strike crews did, but I think the specialness was that our job was there to to protect uh, probably the bravest men in the world. We used an electronically equipped airplane with an electronic warfare officer such as myself in the backseat seat. And we went in to locate the service-to-air missile site. And then on our wing, we had uh, dive-bombing airplanes, F-105s again, and they would do the actual destruction. Uh, actually, at, at a point not far down the road, we carried destruction, destructive capability, too. We carried CBUs, cluster-bombing units, and the wingman carried his hard bombs. And between us, we uh, did a number on the site when we'd catch it. But finding them was just very difficult. To find the site, you had to see it. Uh, The North Vietnamese were masters of camouflage and the world was green over there. They uh, hid their sites very well and they also had dummies set up openly so you could attack the wrong site. So we had to know where it was and to find it, the only way you could find it was to have him launch missiles you could very successfully get him to launch his missiles at you if he flew up high, throttled back a little, and presented a great target, which is what we did. Once he launched missiles at you, launched missiles at us, uh, we may have another site launch at you. But all this while, Jerry had to keep his eyes on the site. And all the while, he was dodging the missile and everything. He had to keep his eyes on the smoke from the site, keep it in, in, in view, and then we would do our diabomb bomb maneuver, and it was extremely difficult to do all the execution phases and then to successfully hit the site, but we did that. All of the F-105 airplanes and F-4 airplanes over there had radar warning receivers, uh, and they would point toward the uh, radar of the different kinds of radar. It might be a triple-A uh, directing radar or a to air missile directing radar. and The length of the strobe would tell you the proximity, and it made a noise, which would identify what type of radar it was. All of the airplanes had that. But the special airplanes, and the ones that they ran out of, kept running out of, and we ferried airplanes over to replace them, were the Wild Weasel airplanes. Uh, In the back seat, we had all the standard equipment, but we also had a panoramic scope. Now, this panoramic scope, I could see the entire spectrum on a frequency scale. In other words, every signal that's out there. And I had another function. I could actually stop and time my signal with the surface-to-air missile operator's signal. I could see where he was looking in the airspace. I could see if he's looking over here, over here, whatever. And I could also, by looking at the level, see his interest in us. I'd tell Jerry, okay, this one's... He just had that small receiver up in front. But I could say, isolate just that one and say, this guy is serious. He's about to shoot at us. And so our equipment was very special. And we didn't have that many of these airplanes, these special, specially equipped airplanes. So when we lost them, it was a great panic. We couldn't perform the Wild Weasel mission, which was, as I said, those two immediate mission and the strategic mission. And so we had to replace them. And that's what Jerry and I did in October of 1966. We ferried, we were one of the seven crews that ferried new airplanes over because they'd run out completely. Uh, People like Mike Gilroy that you talk to uh, were waiting there without airplanes. And uh, so we pulled in and the first thing we noticed is they had a wonderful airplane with this wonderful capability. And we had an incredibly sophisticated enemy Uh, much more sophisticated than we thought, in North Vietnam. And yet there were no tactics on how to employ the Wild Weasel against the service-to-air missile site. And uh, the only thing that they said at that time, and Jerry will get into this, was that we should fly 20 miles out in front of the strike force, and uh, because that was the length, uh, the distance, the uh, range of the missile, and engage them, you know, and protect them during the time of the strike. Well, how? How do you find that spot on the ground? How do you do these things? We didn't know how to do this. Um, a couple of guys over there, Leo Thorsness uh, was already there, uh, Harry Johnson, his backseater, Mike Gilroy, Merle and Glenn Davis. Glenn Davis probably taught us more than any other individual, and Mike Gilroy. And they taught us how to survive, and the basics, but no one had tactics. So, I think the first thing Jerry and I did uh, together, I flew there my first day over there, because the guy didn't have a backseater, and he said, I need one, and I went up and, and flew. I mean, I was still tired from the flight over. But the first time Jerry and I got to lead, they were trying to teach us how to lead. And it was a Pac-6 mission, and that's downtown Hanoi, and we were going to go out to protect the force and had no bloody idea of what we were doing. So we drew our route out in front of the force and we went to a place called Yen Bay, which was a crossing point for the Red River. And we didn't know that you should avoid Yin Bay. But as we approached, uh, we had these three other airplanes out here, uh, relying on us and all our astuteness. and. There was an undercast, a very heavy undercast, um, and they launched missiles. You know, I picked it all up and everything, fine, they launched, and the other thing is, we'd been told that these looked like great big telephone poles. Well, this missile is going Mach 3.5, if you can imagine it, three and a half times the speed of sound. We're going about three quarters the speed of sound, or around the speed of sound, so closure is well over Mach 4. That gives you an idea how fast this thing It's a blur. It's just a blur. And we can't see the ground. Jerry couldn't see it to dodge it. So the first thing we're looking and we're yammering. The rest of the force very astutely turned around as it heck with you guys, and went back across the red and waited for us, knowing what would happen, I assume. They'd been there a while. The SAM came darting out of the clouds, blew up just beneath us. And by the way, all the sound effects you hear on, on, on television and movies, this boom. There's no boom. High explosives go crack just like that and it's a great huge orange explosion with black shooting out the top and the bottom and that's all shrapnel and deadly stuff and it just knocked our airplane upside down. So, we're sort of feeling ourselves and everything and saying, are we still alive? Are we still here? We were alive and I said, I'm okay finally or something like that, probably in a very high pitch voice. Uh, and Jerry said, I'm okay. We went back across the river, picked up all those guys, and went on to the target. Now, it's a terrible weather day, and the target was a place called Tainuya, and this is before he got famous. The mission commander on the mission, Gene uh, C- uh, was his name, uh, was a lieutenant colonel, um, sort that says, Damn, the SAM's full speed ahead and uh, he caught a SAM in his cockpit right over the target. Jerry and I went back to talk Lee. He doesn't like to talk about it and I don't like to talk about it. But we considered that first mission an utter failure. We had done everything wrong. We started studying day and night. That's all we did was study. Jerry, who was a weapons school instructor, uh, Top Gun School instructor, started coming up with tactics, and he studied the the, the weapons we carried just incessantly. He memorized all these tables and everything. I memorized our equipment and the enemy, Sam. I can today tell you about the length and the burn time and everything of every one of those weapon systems. Uh, And it never happened again. From that point on, uh, we knew where to go, and we got better and better, to the point uh, that we used to say we would drop uh, leaflets on Moscow if they wanted us to. The airplane was magical, told us everything that was happening in the air, uh, and we were capable after a while. But you've got to remember, our job was protecting the most, the bravest and most honorable men and that we had ever known. And that made the uh, mission a lot easier. But the F-4 and the F-105 fighter
0: pilots were tremendously brave. Understandably, the wild weasels sometimes felt like nothing more than sitting ducks. Our normal
2: area was Hanoi. We were flying near Haiphong. Now the the navy did not have wild weasels. They used EA six Bs, which is a different concept. They jam, used jamming and launch strikes only. In other words, they just had the uh, do it now protection. So, we always expected, when we went over there, a lot of SAM activity, lots of guns, and that sort of thing. Uh, in our area, they were afraid we'd pounce on them and kill them. Over there, they didn't do that sort of thing. So, we were going toward Haiphong, just south of Haiphong, and looking at a site there, and a the site came up, fired at us, and they all fire in three, so we had three missiles coming at us. We knew about those. By that time, we'd been there 40 or 50 missions. And we knew what we were doing. Uh, and then Jerry turned and uh, he was after that site. Another site fired at us. So, okay, that's six missiles in the air after us. That's okay, we're still concentrating on that first guy. And then I announced a third sight fired at us. And uh, so we had nine missiles in the air, this one point in time, at our little rosy bodies. Our wingman and the rest of the flight just kind of pulled back and. Here we were facing all these SAMs, and Jerry astutely dodged the first one, and normally if you dodge the first SAM, uh, the other two will go by you on that cubby, and then reversed or whatever you did, but anyway, all nine SAMs uh, were going by the wayside when he was in the pot delivering weapons. There's a camera that comes on uh, when you release your weapons, and it's a 70 millimeter camera, and it goes from fore to aft, and it picked up three more missiles coming in from the rear. So we had 12 missiles in the air at that one moment in time after our bots.
0: Despite the training and the -the state-of-the-art equipment, the Wild Weasels did a lot of learning while on the job. The special radar jamming gear used by the Weasels sometimes outpaced their own battle tactics.
2: The one thing that we were not able to do in North Vietnam with the Wild Weasels was have a SAM uh, rollback. That is, take out the strike guys, let them off for a few days, and put the SAM killers to work, just knocking back the SAMs. We did that with the MIGs, we had MIG days, where the guys would go after the MIGs and try to wipe them all out, keep the threat down. But we couldn't do that with the wild weasel. In fact, once we asked for permission to do that, and we were told and a response that, yes, you're right, it's a valuable resource, therefore the only place you can fly is in Pac-6. That's like a death warrant. Therefore, I was a writer. Even in the Air Force, I could write. Uh, I went to Europe next, and in the war plans there, I was able to include in you know, a rollback of the service-to-air missiles and the creation of sterile corridors into the strike zones and that was precisely what we did during Desert Storm. Um, the other thing was I was uh, able to push through a tactics manual that included both the fighter pilot, the weapons officer, like Jerry was, and the electronic warfare officer, like I was, into a tactic shop, weapons and tactics. So my ability to write really helped me change some of the inequities uh, that we had seen over there. Uh, and not just myself, of course. I mean, there were a lot of people that were upset and mad and angry and said, we want realistic training, we want all these... And we got it. And uh, very glad we did. Um, the equipment was ahead of its time, just like you say. Uh, it, it took some CIA gear and uh, fooled around with it and made something that was much beyond what they'd even anticipated. Uh, I, I've been able to work on all of the equipment since then, and uh, the digital do-it-does-it-for-you stuff that uh, the state-of-the-art today uh, is, no more, is no quicker. Uh, it allows you to do everything hands-free and you depend completely on the machine, but it prioritizes and does everything. I wouldn't trust a machine to do that. I enjoyed the old analog system because it was instantaneous with another thing. Uh, but we had all that capability, and the Air Force was still, uh, when we applied it, They were still in a World War II mentality. Uh, Bombers went in great streams, one after the other. Uh, Turned, you know, and made a huge target. Well, they didn't have SAMs back in the Second World War, and uh, SAMs just chewed up the B-52s. Our fighters, it was the same thing. Uh, We had this wild weasel and this great capability. During Desert Storm, by the way, the guys would not fly unless there was a, they call them the wild weasel police. Uh, in the air. Our guys at Tock Lee wouldn't fly unless they had a wild weasel protecting them. It was a very dangerous mission. Some of the guys led off at about 80 missions, I assume, uh, looking to go home. Uh, I don't think we, I don't remember us doing that. I do know our last five missions were very easy. 96, 7, 8, 9, you know, were very easy. They gave them to us uh, in the less threat areas. Uh, I don't think we asked for them. In fact, uh, we enjoyed being the ones picked for the real Harry missions. Uh, We were young, and uh, I don't... If you think you're going to get shot down, you're going to get shot down. In
0: 1966, on his seventh mission as a Wild Weasel electronic warfare officer, Mike Gilroy was shot down.
3: On about our seventh mission, Ed Larson and I uh, uh, were, uh, were tasked to go up to a protective strike force on the Northeast Railway. And The Northeast Railway is a main rail line that goes from Hanoi up into China. It is a, an extremely heavily defended area because that was one of the main sources of their supplies for MiGs, uh, interceptors, uh, surface-to-air missiles, uh, ammunition, food, and everything else. Um, We were in a flight of two aircraft, which was uh, sort of an unusual configuration. We were, um, uh, of course, the the lead aircraft, and we had a single seat uh, with uh, Captain Pete Pittman flying the number two aircraft. Uh, We uh, took off from Tockley early in the morning, uh, probably about an hour before daylight, I'd say probably something about 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning, uh, flew directly across uh, to the uh, the, uh, uh, to the water across uh, the uh, southern part of uh, North Vietnam, and then headed on north, um, got a refueling tanker up there, and then headed on into the target area. Uh, this was our first mission up into the high threat area. You know, the, we, we had some missions down in, in uh, closer to the uh, demilitarized zone, which which were really uh, not a very good weasel missions because there weren't any radars there. So this, this was the first time we were really up against a lot of, of uh, radars and a lot of defenses. Um, the weather was terrible. It was um, towering cumulus clouds, uh, you know, thunderstorms, uh, thunderclouds, uh, and then a haze below that. So your visibility was really pretty poor. Um, a month later, we wouldn't have flown in that mission. We would have known better. We would have known to be a little more cautious to hold ourselves back a little further. But uh, as I said, it was our sixth mission. We didn't um, know a lot as to what the limits were, so we just pressed on in. We had uh, um, one of the surface to our missile sites, radars came on the air. Uh, I called it out to Ed Larson. I said, we got a SAM at uh, at two o'clock. So that means it's two o'clock to the airplane. Ed Ed said, okay, I'll turn towards it. Ed turned towards it. Um, The signal got stronger and stronger. Um, and that was one of the things you, our missile only went about seven miles and uh, theirs went about 19 miles. So you had uh, uh, 12 miles you had to negotiate there that you were within his range before you got within your range, the range of your weaponry. Um, so we headed on in there and um, it looked like the signal was strong enough so Ed said, okay, I'm going to shoot now. So he pulled up the nose and fired the strike missile off. and. Um, and it went on in, it went on in, and the signal went off the air. So we had hit it. The, the Shrike missile had, had hit the radar site. So I, I called, I said, well, the next one's at 12 o'clock, so he turned, or at 10 o'clock. So he turned to the left and, and uh, lined up on the second one. And we were trying to get close enough to fire at that particular site, and uh, and in the site fired at us. And I, I called. I said, launch, Ed. And I said, they've launched at us. He said, okay. So. Um, what we had um, our tactic then was to uh, to light the afterburner to to get the nose of the aircraft down to put the uh, the radar signal off somewhere in the front of you between your ten o'clock position and your two o'clock position so that you could see it coming at you. We knew that much. So um, the, the missiles, uh, I said. I said, Have you got got it in sight, Ed? He said, Yeah, I got the first one in sight because you can see the missiles. They have a big ball of fire coming behind them, but they come quite fast. and uh, So um, uh, Ed successfully dodged the first two missiles, and, uh, and then the third missile came at us, but it came right out of the cloud bank. We were right up against this cloud bank, and the missile was right there. It seemed right in front of the aircraft in, in blue, and a tremendous explosion just pitched the aircraft, probably about five or six feet up in the air. And, um, and uh, then the cockpit was full of black smoke, and all I could see through the smoke were the, there were two fire warning lights right in front of you, right at eye level, and they were glowing, you know, said fire, um, and uh, could hardly breathe because the, um, the, the missile had hit the front of the aircraft and uh, blown up the ammunition drum for our 20-millimeter cannon, so all that cordite was coming back in the cockpit. And, um, and I was really, uh, I thought, well, you know, this is a pretty serious situation here. Um, and I, I couldn't breathe. I was because of all the cordite smoke back there. I just, you know, I was, I was almost asphyxiated. Uh, there was a handle in the back here that you could pull to jettison your canopy, and I tried to find the handle. And, and I I had only had uh, probably a dozen missions in the airplane, so I, you know, wasn't I, I knew where it was, but I couldn't reach back and put my hand on it. So I reached back and couldn't couldn't find the handle, and I was just about on my last gasp, so I thought, I'm going to die here, and I thought, well, I'd rather die, you know, take my chance in the parachute. So I, I uh, gave up trying to find the handle, and I rotated the ejection seat handles, and that also blows the canopy. But I, I had every intention of getting out of the airplane, because I was, uh, you know, I knew if I didn't get out, I was going to die there. So I rotated the the ejection seat handles, and the canopy blew, and the fire blew out. Just like that, you know, just that rush of air blew the fire out. And as it so happened, Ed Larson blew his canopy at exactly the same time. So the combination of both canopies going at the same time blew the fire out. And um, in order to eject, once you raise the handle is to blow the canopy off, that arm's a seat, and then uh, a trigger falls down. So you have to open your hand again and grab the trigger and squeeze them. And uh, I had every intention of doing that, and I, my hands were open to get around the trigger. And I thought, no, let's think about this a minute. So uh, I, I, I just waited right there, and um, you know, it was, it was beautiful. You know, the, uh, the, the smoke was all gone, the fire was out. Uh, you know, there's a patch of blue sky over here. Uh, you know, things weren't near as stressful as they had been 15 seconds before, uh, not being able to breathe. Um, of course, we were in a, uh, a, an open cockpit uh, airplane going about 400 miles an hour, uh, so you had to sort of sit, sort of straight up. Um, I got on, I, I called Ed on the command, there was a command position on the interphone box that boosts the volume. And I said, Ed, are you there? And he says, yeah, I'm here. And I think he said something bright like, Mike, are you there? Uh, and uh, I, said, uh, I, said, I said, I had to, um, I had to rotate the, uh, the uh, ejection seat handles to blow my canopy off. And he said, me too because he couldn't find the handle either. He had been trying to do exactly the same thing I had been doing. So I didn't feel very bad because, you know, Ed probably had 2,000 hours in the airplane, you know, versus my 40. So I didn't feel too bad that, you know, I couldn't find the handle. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My
4: name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The SIECLA, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The SIECLE, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.
3: So we headed out uh, towards the water. We were, um, we were probably uh, 10 miles uh, southwest of Hanoi at that time. Uh, we headed out towards the water. We had lost our wingman when we were doing all the dodging the missiles, uh, so we were by ourselves uh, lost in that he wasn't with us. Um, so we headed out. Um, I, uh, I, I looked out the, uh, uh, at the left wing. The, the, there's a big hole in the left wing, about front of the left wing, about like that. The top of the tail was gone. front of the aircraft was gone. But it was still moving along pretty well. Um, we, uh, we flew over, um, heading directly to the water, because that was the closest place to get rescued, and flew over a place called Camp Pha, which was, uh, there were iron mines there, but there was also a North Vietnamese gunnery school there. And um, as we were uh, coming up there, uh, there was a big burst of 85-millimeter uh, flak, uh, and it comes up in bursts, you know, circular bursts about um, maybe uh, 100 yards behind us, and I called Ed. I said, Ed, I said, they're shooting at us. And he says, yeah, I see. And the next burst was about 50 yards behind us, and the next burst was right under the aircraft, with anti-aircraft artillery, and it too raised the aircraft up with a big jolt. And just then our wingman joined up. Pete Pittman had, had uh, been trying to find us, and, and, and he, he uh, joined up. Uh, with about maybe a uh, 60 or 70 or 100 knot overtake speed. So he slid under us and, and, uh, and uh, off to the right, uh, maybe a couple hundred yards, and they started shooting at him. They started tracking him. I guess they figured they already had us, they were gonna get the second aircraft. So just him doing that allowed us the time to get across the, the uh, coast and out, into the, uh, out over the water. Uh, and then the controls went out. Um, the 85 millimeter that had hit us had uh, severed the hydraulic lines, so there was no more hydraulic lines, and the aircraft went into a, a left bank, uh, heading up towards uh, Red China. So uh, Ed said, well, it's time for us to get out. And I said, okay, I said, uh, we'll see you in the water. And uh, I ejected, and then about uh, two seconds later, he ejected and um, wound up uh, under the canopy. Uh, you know, they you eject from the aircraft, and then this, there's a thing that kicks you out of the seat, and uh, then your canopy automatically opens up, and everything was going well, and I was very calm and very cool, and and uh, and um, I, I really congratulating myself on how calm and cool and collected I was, that that uh, I was taking care of the situation, uh, no problem, too great, I handled this, I. Um, You have a a survival kit that's attached to your your seat. I pull the uh, handle to release the survival kit. It falls down in a cord below you with the uh, survival kit and then a raft below that. And I was going to throw the handle away, and I thought, no, I'm going to save that for a souvenir, you know. So I unzipped my G-Suit pocket and put that in there and saved it. And, um, you know, I was really thinking I was John Wayne. I was Joe Cool. I I just handled, handled everything well. Um, I've, got, I've got that injection seat handle bronzed, it's on my wall at home. Um, but then I was trying to remember everything that I had been taught in survival school on how to land in the water, and I thought, yes, okay, let's see, and I've got my survival kit down below me, it's about 10 feet below you on a nylon cord, and then about 10 feet below that is your one-man dinghy, your life raft. and I. I was going over in my mind everything that it was, that I had to do. Um, I took out my survival radio and listened to it, you know, because you had a, excuse me, a radio on uh, on guard channel 243.0, so you could hear all the communications that the uh, that the other airplanes were making. And they were, uh, you know, they, uh, our our wingman was was calling the rescue people in to get us, and it seemed like everything was going on, and you know, well, and uh, tried to talk to them, but. But it was, uh, uh, I don't think they ever heard me because I never got a response back. So I put my radio away and and, um, reviewed the things that I had to do to land in the water. And there's a procedure for landing in water so you don't drown yourself under the canopy. And the first thing is that your um, your raft hits the water and that sort of acts like an anchor. And then you turn your face into the wind, you turn your parachute around your face into the wind and and release the the catches here uh, so you can uh, jettison your canopy. And then when your feet hit the water, you're supposed to pull the catches down so that the canopy blows away from you, the wind carries it away. And uh, so all that sequence happened. My raft hit the water, I turned into the wind, I release the catches, my feet hit the water, I release the canopy, and the canopy blows away. And then for the second time that day, I'm about to run out of air again because I had forgotten to inflate my Maywest. West, you know. And, and so I was down there, you know, probably uh, sinking with all this weight on me. Um, in the South China Sea and trying to find the toggles for my May West and I couldn't find them. You know, they're just two little uh, plastic knobs here and I couldn't find the things. And I thought, boy, what a stupid way to die. And just then in front of my face comes a nylon cord which has me attached to the raft. So I said, okay, you know, so I pull myself up the nylon cord, get in the raft and uh, really criticize myself. Well, thank you, dummy. I said, you know, here, uh, you know, you were so calm and cool and and, uh, remembering everything and you forgot to inflate your Mae West, so. Anyway, I sat in the raft, uh, got the radio out, uh, I heard Ed talking so we both knew we were in the water okay. He was probably about uh, half a mile away in the water. Um, I opened my survival kit uh, because everything is supposed to be in there that you need. You know, there's supposed to be a fishing line, uh, rations, uh, canned water. Um, shark repellent, uh, signal flares, and I opened the kit up and the only thing that was in there were black wool socks. Uh, someone had gone through and stolen the things out of the survival kit on the base. So uh, anyway, so I pitched that overboard, I had no abuse at that time, you know, for black wool socks. sat there in the raft contemplating how I had remember reading that the, uh, the South China Sea had the uh, largest concentration of poisonous sea snakes in the world. And uh, lots of sharks, and uh, sat there um, very low profile in uh, in my raft. Um, we had uh, a ship coming out of the harbor towards us. We were right out off Haiphong Harbor. Um, uh, there was some discussion on the guard channel from the rescue airplane. So one of them went in and dropped some bombs, uh, not close to it because that was against the law, but just jettisoned some bombs uh, maybe a mile in front of it. So the ship turned around and went back in. Uh, we got some mortar fire off some islands that we were close to, and uh, we're in the water about an hour and a half. Then they, um, there were some Navy airplanes coming after us, and there was an HU-16, a Grumman Albatross, an old two-engine Grumman Albatross coming from the Air Force. Uh, I didn't know that at the time, but that's we knew some Air, Air Force people were coming. So um, anyway, after about an hour and a half, the HU-16 lands, it picks up um, Ed, and it I hear him on the radio Says, well, I don't see the other one. So I lit off a flare, you know, some green smoke, and they said, okay, we see the smoke. So they came over there, and it was really strange because I did something very irrational at the time. The The airplane came up, and it had no markings on it. And I thought, I don't know if this is an Air Force airplane or a North Vietnamese airplane or a Chinese airplane or what. Uh, which um, was really probably not too rational because I'd just been listening to him talk on the radio. And into the door of the airplane is a an, o- an Oriental in a wetsuit. So I thought, I'm going to pull my pistol just in case. <laughs> so I pull my pistol out, and the guy says, Don't shoot, I'm Hawaiian. So I put my pistol back, and he, he jumps in the water, and they come out and tow the raft up and got me in there. And I expected... Uh, a lot of sympathy and congratulations and, you know, they just looked at me and said, oh, you forgot to deploy your May West, didn't you? So I got no sympathy from them. Um, we had a hard time taking off. The, uh, the uh, airplane had one sick engine, so, um, and the prevailing wind was off shore, so they had to take off uh, into the, towards land. So we made uh, three attempts there. Uh, the airplane was being shot at in all three attempts. And finally, got into the air. Um, you know, an Hu-16 is a joy to behold. It, it sort of gets off the ground, off the air, water by bouncing on it. You know, I mean, you, you bounce and you go a little bit in the air, and then you bounce again. And of course, every time you come down, every ribbit, ribbit screams and stretches, and, and uh, it's uh, it's an amazing thing. I have the greatest respect for rescue people. They took us back to um, to Da Nang, which was in South Vietnam, and. Uh, Went to the flight surgeon and they checked us over and uh, i had hurt my back um, but not too badly it was sore but um, uh, it, it actually was hurt worse than i thought because I, I i didn't have a compression fracture but ed larson had a very bad compression fracture and that happens when the the ejection seat hits you at the force of 18 g's so it, it does a real job on your back if you don't have it lined up perfectly so uh, ed larson was sent back to clark to the hospital there and then eventually back to the states and i went back to um Cockley the next day, and uh, they asked me then what I wanted to do, and I said, "Well, I'd like to take thirty days off and go visit my family." So I went back and thirty-day leave because we had no more airplanes, so uh, uh, that gave them time to get some new aircraft in there. So it was um, it was interesting. Um, it gave me a little bragging rights around the, the stag bar with the with the other weasels. Uh, so and uh, and. Uh, Not something I'd recommend for everybody, but, uh, you know, it it was an exciting time. Pilot
0: Bill Sparks flew nearly 150 missions as a wild weasel. Sparks credits his personal philosophy of flying with saving his life during the Vietnam conflict. Once he had ejected, Sparks looked for a safe place to land. As with most things that happen in tactical aviation, decisions are made
4: long before the fact if they're going to work. So everyone has to come up with a personal with philosophy, personal philosophy, what the hell, philosophies are personal. Uh, I had decided a long, long time before that, that if on fire, jump on the biggest piece going my way and ride it as far as I can. Because the people that made me catch on fire didn't like me. And why would I want to go join them? you know we're not going to have tea and crumpets. This is not going to have fun. They probably don't have any ice, no scotch, no nothing, no peanuts for the party, right? So I want to get as far away from them as I can because they're mad at me. They have a reason to be mad at me. I just shot at them. I dropped a bomb on them. You know, they I can understand. I'd be I'd be mad at me too. So, in fact, one of my one of one of the people that I respect as much as anybody ever saw it had a. PhD in astrophysics and a, and a master's in aero and uh, had been in a mold pro- manned orbital laboratory program, Mo Baker. Mo Baker and I got in this monumental argument in the bar one night over what to do if you're on fire. And he kept saying, you know, the engineering thing was if on fire eject. He said, you know, the explosion could hurt you. And I said, man, the guys on the ground are going to hurt you. So we had this enormous thing. Well, it wound up that Mo got hit and got blown out of the airplane and wound up in jail. Compound femurs uh, and, and torture for a very long time, and did not enjoy himself at all. This was in July or August, I forgot in which of 1967. Well, later on, I got hit and I'm burning like stink. And I did what I, you know, what I could do because the airplane lasted longer, and I stood with it. Now you say, are you afraid? You don't have time to be afraid. You're afraid later. Okay, put yourself in an automobile. Okay, and it's icy. And you're driving along with four lanes of traffic going your way, and some fool in front of you taps the brake starts to spin. And everybody around you starts doing wild gyrations. And you steer through the middle of it and come out the other end. Are you afraid? Not till you stop. Then you get the whips and jangles, okay? It's you're allowed to get the whips and jangles when it's over, okay? So when you're in an airplane, you're too busy to be afraid. When you're in an engagement, you're too busy to be afraid. If you're afraid, you're not going to make it. And it, it isn't bravery that have anything to do with it. I don't know brave people I, never, I don't think I ever met one. Well, yeah, my Carlo, my backseater, the bravest man that ever lived on the face of the earth. He flew with me for goodness' sakes, and just incredible. But you don't have time for that. So what I thought while I was in there was, this isn't any fun? One of the, the, the silly thing is here I am. I'm coming out. You know that I have had to blow the canopy because the cockpit's full of smoke, and I couldn't see. And I was reaching up, gonna. And my gauges, for the instruments were all gone. They weren't working. So I was trying to blow, wave the smoke from in front of the uh, 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 whiskey compass, right? A uh, little magnetic compass that's you know the same thing that. Uh, uh, Basically, they crossed the Atlantic with in 1492, right? And I thought, if my hand gets up there, it'll blow off. <laughs> I was going 690 knots. I'm trying to wave the smoke away from in front of the front of the whiskey cups. Uh, later on, I thought, man, the rudder pedal burned off. How am I going to put the brakes on when I stop this dude because they're on the brake pedal? I mean, what do you mean you're going to stop it? It's just like think he would go anywhere. He's gonna, just going to jump out of it. But, uh, it's all training. It's all the way you get your mind working. Emergencies, everybody flies an airplane. You do emergency procedures. And you work and you work and you work and you work work on emergency procedures so that when you get in an emergency, you've been there before, whether you've been there before or not. And it it, it is not a strange, it is not terra incognita. You know what's there and you handle it. I was in a Heno area, okay? It's flatter than a tabletop, wall-to-wall rice paddies, Wall to wall people. There were something on the order of 500 to 750 thousand people with rifles laying down in this, in a the, in the rice paddy shooting straight up at us when we flew over there. There were 9,037 millimeter and larger guns. There were about four or five thousand automatic weapons that were the equivalent of 30 to 50 calibers. There are 18 SAM sites. There's a whole bunch of MIGs, and there's everybody and this dog wears a uniform, and they're all mad at me. Now it doesn't take a real monumental intelligence to realize you don't want to go down there where they are because they're not going to like you. They're going to beat snot out of you if they get a chance. So you go as far away as you can. Well, it just so happened that I got exactly as far away as I had to get, which is luck. Okay. And I would far better be lucky than be smart or good. And it worked. So I got over the black, over the Red River and then rode the airplane for a little bit, by the way to get over the river after I lost control of it. Why? Because I wasn't where I wanted to be yet. It was still going my way. It's not, you know, this is just do whatever you need to do, right? What you ever got to do. Popped out, slipped the chute. Once I got it open, I did the biggest front riser slip I could do. Got my knee in the clevis and slipped it four and a half miles and slipped into what I thought was was elephant grass. Elephant grass is about 15-foot tall uh, grass, right? Uh, and uh, it wasn't an elephant grass; it was seventy-five foot tall bamboo. So I went smoking down through the bamboo and uh, busted myself up some, and uh, uh, managed to crawl out of the bamboo and get a little hole underneath. Uh, the only place I could see the sky was underneath this enormous teak tree. Uh, the helicopter put a hundred and thirty-five foot of string out, and they were chopping the top out of the tree with the uh, with the rotor blades when uh, when they. Uh, Jungle penetrator hit the ground, and I got on it and went up with string. That's the most
0: beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) But ultimately, Sparks believes it was the innovation and the commitment of the pilots and the EWOs that made the Wild Weasels so successful. Wild Weasel program was put together by extremely
4: dedicated people on a shoestring in a hurry. It was not a Department of Defense initiative that started off, We will now do this. And all these wonderful people with flashy stars on their shoulders and the rest of it uh, really had very little to do with it. It was a grassroots thing because we were in a hurry and we didn't have time to run it through, which is probably one of the reasons it works well. Uh, After Vietnam was over, the, the people who had been in the program really worked hard to get a better system. And that system was the F4G. Uh, A lot of people worked on that very hard. We had a lot of support from some very senior folks who had been there and had flown, and we needed better. What we had in the backseat of the 105 was better than what we had in the backseat of the F-100, but not appreciably better. What we had in the backseat of the F-4C was not as good as what we had in the F-105. when we've got the G model, what they had to do first of all was to take brand new airplanes, strip all the wiring out of them, and start over from scratch because there was so much stray voltage running around in the F force that the, it was exciting the antennas and you just get, you'd self jam yourself. So they started with that. The, the, the mods were rather enormous to take those, those uh, E models and turn them into Gs. The systems themselves, a lot of EWOs. Just kill themselves to make sure that we had this capability to see what was out there. Uh, the first time I ever got to crawl up in a back seat of an F-4G and look around and 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 then go over and do the simulator, do the back seat simulator, I would uh, you know I remember looking up at at uh, I forgotten who was taking me through it was uh, one of the old EWOs, I forgotten exactly who it was now and I looked at him and I said you know I would have I would have sold my kids into slavery for this capability. So we had enormous capability. Lots of people busted their clock. Lots of of very fine, middle-ranking officers sacrificed their careers to make it happen. And uh, when we went to the Gulf, uh, we had a lot of good things happening for us in the Gulf. Not the least of them was was Chuck Horner, who was, who, uh, he was a weasel. (laughs) We went through weasel school together. And uh, when we got over to the Gulf, We had damn near every weasel that we owned show up over there. And Horner was assured that we could do it right. So to do it right means, first of all, you want to take out their ability to see and talk to each other. So that's a weasel job, right? So the day before hostilities started, bombing started, there were a thousand and something. I don't know how many. Something between a thousand and five and a thousand and ten radars. Uh, Three days later, there were four. And we did it right, and the, and the kids went out with these with the new missiles, the uh, Harms, high-speed and radiation missiles, and uh, uh, you know several orders of magnitude better than anything I ever saw. With gear, with with detection capabilities, they were several orders of magnitude better than anything I ever got a chance to play with. They were wonderfully trained. They had a they had a tradition that they were going to uphold one way or the other. They still were first in and last out and incredibly dedicated young men who really, 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 really wanted to do right. I was inordinately proud of them. And uh, uh, did it work? By the second or third week, Horner had tankers operating within 20 miles of Baghdad. And you don't put 100,000 pounds of gas in a, you know, in, a, in a tin can floating around unless you own the air. Or you just flat, don't do that. And we owned it, we owned it, we owned it totally. And if they wanted it, they had rent it.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words, This program was created and produced by First Person Productions in association with the Documentary Broadcasting Company. The stories told herein were supplied by The Honor Project. Produced by David Benson. Content written and produced by Dave Barsky. Engineered by Greg Bartheld and Brian Donovan. Narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by First Person Productions, Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws.
2: Hello, this is Gary Chachot, welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that.